Hi and welcome. I'm Katina Montanos, founder and CEO of Costarina, and your host for the Inquisitive Olive podcast. I'll be bringing you guests with deep knowledge in all things wellness and productivity, from nutrition and fitness to mindfulness and sleep. These conversations will help you uncover the best and most practical techniques to drive health and high performance. Today is a very special day because I'll be welcoming our first ever guest to the Inquisitive Olive podcast. I'm thrilled to be able to introduce you to my good friend and former coworker, Andy Dunn. Everyone who has been in or around the New York City startup scene knows Andy. Andy co-founded the e-commerce-driven menswear brand Bonobos in 2007 and served as its CEO through its 2017 acquisition by Walmart. Andy is an angel investor and has backed more than 80, yes, 80 startups, including Warby Parker, Oscar, and Coinbase. He's also an investor in Costa Rica, for which we are very grateful. Andy was named to Fortune's 40 Under 40 list in 2018. He is a graduate of Northwestern University and the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He lives in Chicago with his wife and their young son. Most recently, Andy has authored his debut book, a scintillating but also harrowing memoir called Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind. And now, the man, the myth, the legend. Andy, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Katina. Thank you. So um, I thought to just give the listener a little bit of background, I would tell them sort of how we know each other. And you and I both came to become Walmart employees, both through acquisitions. So I came through the acquisition of Jet.com and you through, of course, the acquisition of Bonobos, a company that you had been building for 10 years prior to that point. And so when we were at Walmart, I was a direct report of yours. We worked together and spoke, you know, nearly every day and met in person, you know, two to three times a week. And you had mentioned to me that you had a therapist, but who in New York doesn't, I didn't really think anything of it. And I learned when you sent me the early copy of your book that you have bipolar disorder. Why didn't I know that? And how didn't I know that? Yeah, it's a great question. And as for working together, I can still remember the first time we met in a conference room at Bonobos. Oh, yes. That's what I remember. (laughs) And I heard about the initiatives you were working on. And of course, Walmart was exploring the acquisition of, of my then startup, Bonobos. And I thought, is that my boss? Am I going to be working for <laughs> Katina? Um, and it ended up the other way around, but we probably should have done it with me working for you because we would have gotten a lot more done. Um, I doubt that. We- but yeah, that's right. We met in the Bonobos conference room the first time. And then once I was joining your team, we met at the diner down the block from Bonobos. So fun. <laughs> and by the way, for the audience, um, Katina is just simply one of the best people and executives I've ever worked with and had the pleasure of working wow. with. So it's so fun. Thank you, uh, to, Andy, see what, to see what you're building now. So in terms of why I didn't share that I had bipolar disorder from when we met, I have to say that I so admire the former CTO, founding CTO of Kayak, um, Paul English, because on a recent roundtable with Fast Company that Alicia Keys was a part of and Paul was a part of, he talked about how when he received his bipolar diagnosis, He just told everyone around him because he thought it was important data for other people to know. And what a beautiful way to think about it, which is to say, you know, give people the information and be transparent. I felt that it would be a career limiting move to share that I had bipolar disorder. And I think that stems 
from the early days of being an entrepreneur where it's hard hard enough to raise capital when when investors think you are of sound mind <laughs> and i figured that if people knew i had a mood disorder that isn't it's not well understood and by the way if you do understand it it might be even more scary to think about backing someone who has the issue in other words if we're not treated and we're not medicated people like me with bipolar disorder are prone to long periods of depression um, and long periods of elevated mood, whether that's hypomania, which is sort of the, the more kinetic mood state that is you're on, ideas are flowing, you're talking a little faster, maybe you have a little more vision, a lot of energy, everything's happening for a reason. And funnily enough, a person in a state of hypomania is virtually ins- indistinguishable from an entrepreneur who's having a good day, <laughs> which is why we think that um, bipolar disorder is at about 3% of the general population. And the early research out of UCSF, who actually has a center on mental health and entrepreneurship, is that it indexes seven to one in entrepreneurs, which would mean that maybe one in five entrepreneurs have bipolar disorder. To say nothing of the other mental illnesses that, first of all, we all deal with, and that might be disproportional in the entrepreneurial community. Wow. Unipolar depression, addiction, borderline personality, and narcissistic personality disorder, which I think some extra level of narcissism is almost required to be an entrepreneur, because why would you believe that you of all people were going to build something that no one's built? And that, of course, as we know, can can be unhealthy levels of narcissism. And then there's probably some healthy level as my doctor says. So I just assumed Katina that if I was on the record with this issue, I wouldn't be able to raise money. And I assumed that people wouldn't want to work for me, that they would view me as someone who had an underlying liability of, you know, being prone to volatility and who wants to follow someone who isn't steady. And I also worried that people would view me through that lens, that it would change the way people looked at me and it would be like, well, is that a good idea? Or is he just a little manic right now? Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, oh man, this is a difficult person to work for. He's up, he's down. I can't work for someone who has bipolar disorder. And so I, I thought um, it would limit me if I disclosed it and the publication of burn rate for me is about changing that conversation and creating a safe space to normalize disclosure of the mental health issues that we all already are facing. Mm -hmm. And let's bring those to light. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, so many things I want to unpack there. I want to talk more about hypomania and I want to talk more about um, the over-indexing of, you know, mental health challenges amongst entrepreneurs, all super interesting. But just to back up for the listener, tell us a little bit about Burn Rate, the story. I'll just say like, I read this book and devoured it. It's really, really good. Um, I knew you were an incredible speaker and I knew you were an incredible writer from some of the work we did together at Walmart. Um, But this is just like uh, a really interesting story about entrepreneurship, a really interesting story about like family and mental health and relationships and, um, you know, just a lot of vulnerability, vulnerability that came out of it. So tell the reader a little bit about, you know, what is burn rate and why did you tell this story? Yeah, thank you. And thanks for reading it in advance. And it makes it so much more fun to connect on it. So the story is this, when I was 20 years old, I was a senior in college 
I had an acute psychotic break out of nowhere uh, or seemingly out of nowhere. I was dealing with delusions of grandeur, messianic zeal, stopped eating, stopped drinking, elevated mood state. I was at a Burger King in three in the morning, you know, trying to convince people I was going to deliver a sermon later in the week. And uh, the challenge with the manic state, the, you know, the state of mania is basically your brain and your body are disconnecting. And so you're so busy frequently, certainly in my case, saving the world that you stop eating, you stop drinking. And at some point, um, at least in my case, I make this decision that I don't need to sleep. And so if you take someone who's already mentally unwell, and then you add, we think I was up for four days in a row. So, you know, three wow. nights of no sleep, you can imagine for anyone at that point, you're in a lot of trouble. And so I spent a week hospitalized at a, the mental wing of the hospital where my mom actually worked and where I had been a candy striper and where I had worked part-time jobs as, you know, in the dark room developing x-rays. And um, so it was extra humiliating when I came out to know that there was a community of people that knew that this had happened first of all, in the hospital community where I had worked, and then amongst my friends at school and college, Northwestern, who all knew that this had happened. And so I was diagnosed with bipolar one upon leaving. The words hit me like a sledgehammer when I heard them. I couldn't, I couldn't process it. It didn't, it didn't make sense. It was out of nowhere. Like, you know, it was kind of a last week I was fine kind of thing. What is this? And the brief time I spent thinking about or researching what it was it just sounded terrifying. So, you know, for bipolar one, the suicide attempt rate, we think is 60% at some point in your life. The suicide rate is 20%. And so you sort of picture being 20 years old and you're on top of the world one day, and then you get some news that there's a one in five chance you're going to end your own life by the numbers to say nothing of the mania, which is, you know, it's humiliating in retrospect, thinking that you're Jesus 2.0. And when you know other people thought you thought that, it's like, oh, gosh, we know what's going on in that guy's subconscious. <laughs> and it's so embarrassing that, you know, it's a hard thing to talk about and to know that that could recur on the manic side, that you could end up back in a hospital, that it could be any time. It could be again in a month. It could be in 20 years, can come back out of nowhere. And so what we did in my family and what I did is we decided to bury it. We decided to pretend like the diagnosis was inaccurate or had never happened. And we did it by making an excuse for the diagnosis, which is that three weeks before the episode, I had for the first time in my life used mushrooms, magic mushrooms, psilocybin. And at the time, like many college seniors, I drank a lot. I smoked a lot of pot. I had dabbled in ecstasy the previous summer when I was a summer intern in New York. And so this narrative that I was sharing for the first time with my family, where there was no discussion of drug use and alcohol use was not to be talked about. It was just an easy scapegoat that it had been drugs that had induced this episode. And the truth is, as my psychiatrist now says, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are mental illness substance abuse and addiction, criminal justice and homelessness, those things are all related. But the fact that there are substances involved doesn't mean that the diagnosis is to be ignored. Those are just intersecting realities. 
and the diagnosing psychiatrist said something in retrospect that was not ideal, which is she said, look, it's a differential diagnosis, which is to say it can evolve as new data emerges. And if Andy quote, doesn't have another issue within the next five years, end quote, you know, there is a chance that this was some kind of one-off psychotic event or break. And so everyone clung to those words like a life raft. And then the worst possible thing happened, which I was entirely asymptomatic from issues of mania or depression for about a decade. And that enabled us all to solidify the lie that I didn't have bipolar disorder when I did. And as the book details in 2010, let's call it, um, it came back in a major way. It came back on the depressive side. I spent five or six years in and out of long spells of acute depression, didn't want to get out of bed, didn't want to work, didn't want to live, would barely make it to work during the week, would sleep literally 75% of the hours in a weekend. And I hid it from everyone. And then alternating with that other mood state, we talked about hypomania, which is actually literally like jet fuel for being an entrepreneur. It's very, um, it's actually very helpful And as my doctor says, might we all be controllably hypomanic every day, Mm -hmm. right? If we could all be an eight out of 10 with a lot of energy every day, that would be great. With bipolar disorder, you make a Faustian bargain, which is you get to be an eight out of 10 for like four months in a row and really get Herculean things accomplished, but it comes with a price. And the price is that for the next four months, you might be catatonic and undesirous of carrying on. And then in 2016, as I continued to live this lie and hide this as much as I could, I had a second catastrophic manic episode. I ended up in the hospital at Bellevue for a week. At that point, everyone, including me, became clear-eyed that this was something I needed to deal with. I was ready to be in treatment and medication. My family had had 16 years of you know, growing up on this issue. Society had changed. My girlfriend was behind me and I walked out ready to deal with it. And I walked straight into handcuffs. And I was arrested for felony and misdemeanor assault. Uh, and that's kind of where the book gets interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, it really is quite a wild story. And to know you, you know, pretty well and not know any of it felt really crazy on my end as a reader. Um, I feel like you gave us a good picture of what mania is through like the Burger King story and some flavor of what depression looks like. I was reading the book and a quote that kept coming back into my mind was a Tennessee Williams quote that I loved, kill my demons and my angels might die too. And I felt like, yeah, great quote. I I wanted to see how you'd react to that and and wanted to hear a little bit more about hypomania, um, which I learned from you, as you said, as the state of mind that comes before mania or on the ascent to mania. Um, And you describe it as being helpful or even magical for an entrepreneur building a startup. And in the book, you called it an engine for creativity, optimism, and vision. So I was wondering if whether you thought you had even glamorized hypomania a bit, because I felt myself like, I want to experience that. What's that like? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Tell me your thoughts on that and and give us a little bit more flavor on on that specific part of the the disorder. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say that I know your mind, but I'm guessing that you you probably have experienced days like that. We could talk, maybe we can mm-hmm. reverse roles on, on a podcast at some future point in time. Um, hypomania is basically like highly optimistic and a lot of energy. And so the thing I want to avoid with the book is implying that it's helpful to have a mental illness 
to being an entrepreneur, I think it's important to recognize that there are a lot of people who are taking good care of their mental health, who build great things and being healthy and steady and stable over time. Those are positive attributes to building something enduring. Um, and there was a moment, I love our publisher, it's Penguin Random House. It's a division called Crown. They're wonderful people. The book would not be good without my editor, Paul Whitlatch. That said, there was a moment where there was a conversation around calling the title Here's to the Crazy Ones, mm -hmm. which is a Steve Jobs commercial from, I think, back in the 80s when he came back to Apple after his long hiatus. And it's a great commercial and it's Gandhi and MLK. And I had a couple reasons I didn't want to do it. First, don't compare yourself ever, even subliminally to Steve Jobs. <laughs> Second, the idea of celebrating crazy, I think, is the wrong goal. Mm -hmm. I think I don't think we should celebrate crazy. I think we should just deal with it. And to the point around Tennessee Williams, and I've never heard that quote, acknowledge that bright light strengths tend to have dark side concomitant. Um, the way he put it, let's call it demons. And so we've got to figure out a way to diminish the demons without, you know, kind of ripping, ripping down the strengths. And I think that's a doable enterprise. In fact, in fact, I know it is for me because I feel, I feel much better now as a leader on medication and in treatment than I felt before. Mm -hmm. I feel no I don't feel like I have less access to creative ideas. I, I feel like I get less irritable when someone disagrees with me. I feel less sure of my creative ideas in terms of like, this definitely is going to work. Mm -hmm. And having, let's call it a, a dangerous amount of hypomania at Bonobos, my previous startup, you know, selling pants was also really unhelpful. You know, at one point I thought we're going to build the next generation technology stack inside of our company. And we literally started trying to build Shopify inside of Bonobos. You know, we rented an I remember office you in telling California. Me about that. I remember you were like, we over-invested in technology. Yeah, we the spent right at the time. Totally. Yeah. We spent probably $30 million mm -hmm. trying to pretend we were a technology company when we were instead a, a retail company, mm -hmm. maybe technology enabled, but it's different to sell pants versus to write software. And, you know, it might get a little bit nerdy, but there was someone working on that, an entrepreneur named Toby, who built a company called Shopify, which is now doing that. And it makes sense that Toby did that. He's a software engineer and his company was 100% focused on that. And I think hypomania is useful for creative ideation, but it's extremely unhelpful for focus. And so if you can't balance days where you feel like an eight out of 10 with a lot of other days where you feel like a five or a six. Um, it's actually hard to build something enduring with that, yep. without the steadiness. And frankly, the days where I felt like a two out of 10 or a three out of 10, you can't get anything done in that state. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's much better to try to live in a zone of let's call it like between five and eight out of 10. Mm -hmm. And have a lot of flat days and that's okay. And that's life. And have some days where you feel better and that's cool. And maybe have some peak experience days. That's beautiful. And let's try to ward off the extremes. I think that's the goal. Got it. Totally makes sense.
Yeah, you um you talked about a day in the book where you had to tell your investors that you had bipolar disorder. I think it was after, you know, coming out of the hospital and you mentioned that one of your investors or board members was like very accepting of it and, you know, the they let you continue to run the company as as before and even told you that they had experienced similar issues with other founders, you know, in their portfolio or in past portfolios. And you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation a stat of, you know, seven to one um, for mental health for entrepreneurs. Why is that? And, um, and, you know, is it the company that makes people have mental health challenges or, you know, building a company that makes it or what is it, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. Yeah, the good news is the chicken and the egg thing hasn't been resolved because I think this one would be a tough one to resolve. I think that the entrepreneurial life just brings with it necessarily a sine curve of ups and downs. It's just sort of a part of the animal. There are the days where it feels like it's going to work or it is working. Good things are happening. I'm sure you've had those days. Mm -hmm. And there are other days where it feels impossible it feels um, like you're almost certain you're going to fail. Um, you're not sure you're going to make payroll. That big account falls through. Um, or, or even you just don't have the energy for it anymore. And, and so it's a battle of managing your own psychology through those ups and downs. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that the journey of ups and downs is not unique to an entrepreneur. It's a part of the human experience. Um, it may be the case that for entrepreneurs, the job has a higher high and a lower low on it mm -hmm. professionally than other jobs do because you're responsible for the organization's existence. And so one of the things I loved about after we sold Bonobos to Walmart and working at Walmart was knowing that no matter what I did, Walmart wasn't going to miss payroll. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> exactly. I didn't carry the weight of being responsible for the team and the employees having jobs and getting paid. I wasn't responsible for making sure our customers were going to continue to be able to kind of have, have the brand. And I wasn't responsible for the shareholders in the same way. And yeah. when you're an entrepreneur, you're responsible for all three of those groups. Mm -hmm. And you're responsible in theory for the community impacts now as we drive more towards a stakeholder capitalism approach, community sustainability, things like that. It's a lot to carry. Mm -hmm. And so I think that being an entrepreneur draws out those highs and lows. And I think it attracts people mm -hmm. um, who've got something, let's not say crazy, but a little zany about them. Yeah. You know, it, it attracts people who think for some reason that they can build something that other people haven't yet built. And there is a level of self-belief that is required to jump into that. There is a willingness to take risk that's required. And to your point, coming back to Tennessee Williams, that self-belief can't, I don't think fundamentally exist without a either hidden or acknowledged comparable level of self-doubt. Mm -hmm. And so and that self-doubt is all consuming on the bad days. It can, it can literally eat you alive, mental illness underlying or not. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, I, I heard someone talk uh, recently about uh, men who come back from war 
and they literally can't like their life is just too boring and they just almost like wish that they were back there like the camaraderie of being with other soldiers and that the excitement that they were feeling and I'd sort of not to say that we're like you know people in the military but I feel like if there's a little bit of entrepreneurship um that relate that I can relate to to that where you kind of just like you always need it you can't really do anything else besides be an entrepreneur once you do it because you can't get those highs even though it comes with the lows so you know definitely can, some some parallels there I'd love to pause on that I'm reading a book right now called it didn't start with you mm-hmm. it's about something different it's about how family systems pass down trauma and pass down things that may not have originated in our lives so a crime that happened in the family, um, incest, a murder, someone in the family who died by suicide, a child that was lost, um, issues of mental illness. And it basically talks about how these are heritable within the family system. And obviously so much of our humanity comes from our upbringing and our, and our parents. And it talks about how so frequently we internalize whatever we receive from our parents as a form of sustenance. And that's why we so frequently seek out or replicate dynamics in our family origin story in our own families, mm-hmm. because it makes us feel like something is right or that's love, right? Mm-hmm. Like my, my wife's mom talks a lot and my wife is introverted and so it's critical with my wife to make space and give her time. Like at the end of a day, I just have learned to shut up and see what she comes up with. And there might be like 10 minutes of painful silence. And then the most brilliant questions and insights are coming up. It took me a long time to learn that. And it's sometimes she's joked that like, she's just replicated a relationship with a extroverted boundary mm. violating narcissistic chatterbox which is exactly the challenges that she's had with her own mom. And she's just run that playback. And I think there's something so true to it. And, you know, the funny side of it for me is my mom is an immigrant, brilliant, great judgment, calm, steady. And I do feel similarly about my wife, who is sort of the, the buoy and the ballast in our relationship. And on the back of her iron will and her love and her acceptance, I was able to rebuild myself coming out of the episode in 2016 and, and we got engaged six months after that and married the next year. Um, and I kind of like Humpty Dumpty put myself back together on the, on the back of her love. And of course, there was more to do there around like, well, what, what did that, everything that happened, what did that mean for her? How did I make sure that I was an equal partner? And so I think there is something to this concept of seeking out the familiar, even if the familiar is hard. And so for me now, as I start a second company, there are some people that are like, well, what are you doing? And I'm reminded of the song, the song um, with Machine Gun Kelly and Camila Cabello called Bad Things. And I think there's a quote in there that says, I love the pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do, I do think we come to love it. And I guess the question is, is, can we navigate it in a way where we can still maintain some semblance of mental wellness? I think that's the goal. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, you you hear just colloquially, like a girl always marries her father. You know, it sounds like you married your mother in some ways or look for like similar qualities in creating your own, your own family. Um, speaking of Manuela, who I have met and um, everything you say about her in the book is true. She really is incredibly, you know, beautiful, 
brilliant um, and, and amazing in many ways. Um, you talked a lot about Hamilton in the book as well. And I was thinking a lot about Eliza and how she was like the true hero of the story and wondered what you thought about the idea of Manuela as your Eliza. Like, is she really the hero of the story? Because it, it really did feel like she's what brought everything to stability for you so that you could lead a much more productive life going forward. Manuela is the hero of the story. And then I hope something is different than Eliza, although maybe similar, which is I, I hope Manuela is also the hero of her own story. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important to her that she is Manuela's own ensign and not Andy Dunn's wife. And I think that's going to be more than the case. Mm -hmm. She's working on something so exciting in the sustainable water space that I think could really change the world. And one of the reasons why I try to support that as much as I can is I want her to be the hero of her story. And I reciprocally, privately want to play the same role that she's played for me. Love it. And that's required a lot of growing up. You know, I was a self-centered bachelor entrepreneur and the journey to being a let's never go to selfless because that's just not going to happen for me, but a directionally less selfish, you know, father and husband, it requires a lot of change. And I would say in that regard, I don't want to say or pretend for everyone that mental health issues or mental illness is a, is a blessing because we can all interpret that differently. But being in therapy two times a week for six years is not just, and which is what I've done, is not just helpful to staying mentally healthy. It's helpful to doing the work that we all need to be doing, however we do it, to get out of our own heads as the center of the universe and be aware of how to support the people around us. And I think becoming a father the, la the last 18 months, part of what I've loved about it is I'm no longer the sun, literally, in the universe. I'm like a planet orbiting him. Yeah. <laughs> like I felt that shift. Like I used to be the sun and now I feel like I'm Mars or something like that. And I'm orbiting him. Like he's the most important thing in my world. Good way of putting it. <laughs> and um, yeah, and there's some fun, you know, hypomanic sun, sun, you know, whatever that is, a homonym. And I love it because I just, I'm not the most important thing to me anymore. Right. And that's a gift. And I, and I wish just getting married had done that. But I feel like, man, guys are so freaking selfish that that's hard for us to do. <laughs> um, having, having a child really helps accelerate that um, reorientation of what's most important. And so, yes, Manuela is like Eliza and I hope is also like Alexander Hamilton too. I, I don't want to limit her ability to be the star of the musical too, rather than just the wind beneath the wings, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Perfect answer. <laughs> um, I want to sh shift gears a little bit and talk about food and routines and wellness. So at Costa Rica and the Inquisitive Olive, we, we talk a lot about food and how it affects your broader lifestyle. Um, Dr. Mark Hyman is one of our disciples. We look to functional medicine in a lot of different ways as we think about recipes and um, eating in a way that's better for you and eating in a way for longevity. And um, Dr. Hyman wrote this book, The Ultra Mind Solution, a long time ago, where he basically says that mental health or mental illness can be cured by food and lifestyle changes. I know that sounds really extreme, but I want to get your take on those ideas and whether there were shifts in your diet or sleep or lifestyle that made you feel more stable and um, had less of the ups and downs. That's exciting. Mark's view on that. I'm 
I want to read the book now and I want to learn more about him. I think that food is so important. I'll go ahead just for kicks and I'll put it third mm-hmm. um, for, my, for me, for my life experience. Um, maybe fourth. First is sleep, um, is getting sleep. And I think it's just really clear on my side that if I start to sleep below six hours a night and as that can cascade downwards, I am ascending in mood state. And once I'm at a sleepless night, we're kind of in the danger zone. Interesting. That's more counterintuitive than I would have thought. I would have thought that less sleep, but the other direction. Lower sleep Mm -hmm. drives me up in my case and higher sleep is an indicator of an increasing depressive state. And my doctor is quick to point out depression generally comes in two sleep formats, can't get out of bed and insomnia. So that can happen for different people in different ways. But the game-changing innovation in my life was around sleep. My mom's insistence that I resisted at first, like any good son, uh, strong resistance to my mom's idea, which is that I, I wear this Fitbit every night. I have a sleep report that comes off of it that shows hours slept and another little ingredient that's critical, which is REM. So actually like if I'm under an hour of REM, that's bad. If I'm over two hours, that's bad. So there's kind of like a 60 to 90 minutes of REM sweet zone for me. And every morning I screenshot that sleep report and I send it to my doctor, my wife, my mom, and my sister. We have a shared WhatsApp group just so everyone's aware of how much I've slept, which is an ingredient to understanding where my mood state might be going. Sometimes I feel like it's a parole bracelet and I like get rebellious but it's just helpful back to that concept of yeah. give people the data, give your loved ones the data that they might need. Don't hide. And it sounded like your sister was kind of doing that even before your full, your second diagnosis, right? Like she was totally. asking you and, you know, watching you and making sure you were okay from a sleep eating, you know, mind mindfulness perspective. Totally. God bless her. She was like a human Fitbit. Mm-hmm. She would text me every night, you know, kind of yeah. a little good night you know, more or less texts are getting touch in the morning, try to get me on the phone. Cause you can often hear how right. someone's doing from the tone of their voice. So sleep is kind of the core. And then I will put medication for me up there. Like I could not substitute sauteed broccoli for a mood stabilizer. Like that would not be a good ch- trade. <laughs> like I might weigh less and look better, but I have a, you know, pharmacological need for a mood stabilizer in my day-to-day routine. So I'd rather eat McDonald's every day and have that mood stabilizer. I might not be happy with my own health in a lot of ways, but at least like I, the medication is key. And I would, I would be wary of any concept that we can, if we just have the right diet, we might not need, you know, pharmaceutical help. I think that's a, that's a very, that's a little bit of a dangerous, maybe a very dangerous concept. So yeah. Medication. And just in his defense, I think he, he agrees with that and definitely feels okay. like there's a need for medication. Um, but I, I think he's seen enough cases. It sounds like where, um, people have shifted their diet in a major way and have seen really big improvements, um, particularly as it relates to depression. I'm not sure about bipolar disorder specifically. I think that's, that's a, that resonates a lot with me. And for me with food, when I'm depressed, I tend to, and this might not be surprising, you know, medicate with food. I, I medicate hypomania in the pre-medicated era. Hypomania was all about drinking. And I think alcohol was the mood stabilizer. I would drink between three and 15 drinks a night 
when I was hypomanic every single night. Wow. I, I was out 100% of Three and 16 is a pretty big range. <laughs> yeah, averaging four or five, right? Mm -hmm. Which is really, really unhealthy. That's 20 drinks a week. Mm -hmm. And that was how I kept my mood from escalating was the hypomania, really unhealthy. And then on the depressive side, you know, just kind of diving into a lot of, you know, carbohydrates and sugar foods and other things that were, you know, soothing my, my mood. And, and then the challenge with that is for me anyway, I would gain more weight. I would feel lower self-esteem from the way that I looked and the way that I felt, uh, it would be hard to exercise when I was depressed. And so I would have this kind of unvirtuous cycle of unhealthy eating, absence of working out, uh, too much sleep, makes it hard to burn any calories in the day. If you're asleep for 16 hours, right? It's even harder. And so I agree that when I'm eating well, that tends to correlate with a virtuous cycle of sleeping well and exercise. And so, yes, I think it's a huge part. It's an ingredient. And for me, it's a symbol or a symptom kind of, of how I'm doing if that makes yeah, sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah. It's definitely very holistic and part, it's a, a piece of the puzzle. It sounds like. Um, so finally, I, I want to ask you about the timing of writing this book. Um, you are sharing the story after having a very successful exit of your company. You sold Bonobos to Walmart for over $300 million and everything turned out pretty amazing for you on the other side of that. Right. I think you would probably agree that that's what gives you the ability to share this story right now. Um, so I'm wondering what you think about that. I is it only okay because you're a success? Like, what would you say to someone who doesn't have that massive success under their belt and is struggling with a, a mental disorder like this? Would you recommend that they share it or should they, you know, remain discreet with the people that they work with? Yeah, it's a, a, such an awesome question. And I think I have the privilege of sharing it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And in discussions with the family, my family, there was sort of some moments of like, well, why, why are we doing this? You know, why are we putting our quote unquote dirty laundry or skeletons out there? We got through it. Why do we need to make this public? And I just, I felt like it was a responsibility that it would be masquerading as a lie for people to think that this had been some kind of a living the dream experience. And, you know, we live in an era where hopefully we're moving, you know, from polished to pilled, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I think the up and coming generations are helping with this Gen Z in particular with the destigmatization of so many things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, actually, here's what actually happened. It's not the architectural digest, beautiful photo. It's like, I'm at Bellevue, um, you know, and walking out into handcuffs like that also is true. And so to leave out that part of the story is to enable a distortion to be the perceived truth. And so I felt a responsibility to people like me who are in the position of not knowing what they can say to feel like, you know what, like, I'm going to make it too. Mm -hmm. This isn't in my way. And to create more permission by the disclosure for others mm -hmm. to the person you're alluding to, let's say the up and comer um, who has this issue and feels like they need to hide it. I, I like the kind of take a 10% step approach. You don't need to jump in and tell like your boss or do a fireside chat at work 
you know, or make an announcement on social media, although you should do all of those things if you want to. But if you're not feeling like you're ready to jump to that, then just take a 10% step. And so a 10% step might just be talking to a friend about it who you've never talked about it to before. It might be talking to a Lyft driver about it, a stranger, Mm -hmm. someone, I don't know, that you meet out there in the world. Frequently, those people who don't know us at all are the easiest people to say something to. Start building a muscle around disclosure and take 10% steps. So maybe it starts with your best friend or a good friend from growing up. Then maybe it goes to a friend at work. So you don't have to jump to like telling whatever the CEO of the company. Take those 10% steps. When it comes to leaders, I think it's a little different, which is we have a responsibility to tell our teams about our mental health challenges because it's so connecting for them and it gives them space to bring vulnerability to work too. And you don't have to have a diagnosis to share that you're having a hard day or a hard time or something hard is happening in your life, that you're having an issue with grief, that there is something you're working on, you know, addiction wise. There are all these things that we assume that would hold us back from other people. And those frequently are the things that they would most connect to because chances are, if you're fortunate enough to be building something or leading something that people are assuming that you're really good at life or um, they wouldn't be able to imagine that you're wrestling with alcoholism or, you know, depression or whatever it is. And when you tell them, they're going to be so much more excited to work with you because you're bringing something real and universal. And of course, everyone has their own issues. And I can just speak from direct experience, which is on Monday, I put out these notes on Twitter and LinkedIn, which I couldn't have dreamed of this week that I have bipolar disorder type one. I put out that I'd been arrested. I put out that I've been arrested for a felony not the kind of stuff you normally put out on uh, LinkedIn. And I'm thousands, I'm working through thousands of um, not just comments, but private DMs and messages. And um, the number of people who have their own stories to share is very high. Mm-hmm. It's very high. And the number of people who reached out to me about a family member with bipolar disorder who is now gone from suicide oh. is staggeringly high. I heard one story this week of a woman whose brother committed suicide 20 years ago. Their family didn't, I said, could you send me an obituary? I just would like to learn about his life. And she said, there isn't one. We didn't even have a funeral. And you think about that pain, heartbreaking. And so I think as leaders, we have to tell our stories because people are going to be more inspired. Yeah. No, I think that's amazing advice. And I really do believe you're going to help so many people with this book and sharing your story. And there were so many people who already looked up to you in the entrepreneurial community. And I think many more will because of this book. Um, Thank you. So, you know, I I already thought you were an amazing visionary and amazing leader. And I'm proud to know you, Andy. I, I wish you all the best success with the book. And, you know, after reading your story, I'm even more impressed with what you've built, despite all the challenges that you had. Um, so you're an inspiration. Congratulations. And thank you for sharing the story with us. Really thank happy you, to come on. Thank you. I'm inspired by you. And I'm so grateful to be here and with, with all the people in the community that you're building. It's wonderful. Awesome. Thanks so much. All the best.